Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. As a writer and advocate, Dame Fiona Kidman has contributed an astonishing amount to New Zealand literature. Born in Hawara in 1940, she has published more than 30 works of fiction, non-fiction, short stories, poetry and plays, and has been a scriptwriter, a radio producer, a journalist and a librarian. She has won several national and international awards, holds both an Order of the British Empire and a New Zealand Order of Merit for services to literature, and is the recipient of a Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. From her first novel, A Breed of Women, in 1979, through to two books in 2016, the novel All Day at the Movies and the poetry collection This Change in the Light, her ability to delve deeply into character and subject so illuminating the ordinary and the extraordinary is evident. Kidman has also dedicated herself to the literary community. She has been a national president of Penn New Zealand and of the New Zealand Book Council, a founding trustee of the Randall Cottage Writers' Trust, and is known and respected for her warmth, humour and insight. Dame Fiona Kidman is the Auckland Writers' Festival's 2017 Honoured New Zealand Writer. She joins New Zealand writer Paula Morris in an hour-long celebration of her work in this special session. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everybody. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, and welcome to this one, session number 115 of the Auckland Writers' Festival. I'm Nicola Leggett, Deputy Chair of the Writers' Festival Board, and on behalf of the Board, I'd like to thank you for being at this year's festival, our 17th. I trust you have enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And at the end of the session, the Festival Director, Anne O'Brien, will come on stage to give us an update on how it's all gone. One of the things I do have to ask you to do is just check that your phones are on silent, so if you could just take a minute to do that now. It's my very great pleasure to introduce this final festival session, our Honoured New Zealand Writer Hour. Over the last six days, we've sat in delight, listening to writers from around the globe as they've shared their parts of the world with us. But every nation must have its own literature and must be able to support its own writers, the people who tell our stories, who move us and challenge us and who reflect us back to ourselves. And that's why this festival takes its commitment to supporting New Zealand literature and the careers of New Zealand writers so seriously. One way that we do that is to shine the spotlight on the long and distinguished careers of our most eminent writers. An event to celebrate one of our literary giants has been the festival finale since 2012. And since then, we've honored Morris G. Albert Went, Patricia Grace, Carl Stead, and Vincent O'Sullivan. Tonight we honor another of our national treasures, Dame Fiona Kidman, poet, memoirist, novelist, scriptwriter, feminist, advocate, Pike River families champion, wise woman, and so much more besides. To introduce her to the stage, Please would you welcome the essayist and novelist and Academy of New Zealand Literature founder, Dr. Paula Morris. Kia ora tato. Tonight, as Nicholas said, we're here to honour Dame Fiona Kidman, one of our most prolific, acclaimed and game-changing writers, and also one of our most civic-minded. The girl who was punished by being locked in the school shed in Kerikeri because of her strong will, 
grew up to be an activist across a range of political issues, from the Springbok tour to more recently Pike River, and also one of New Zealand's literature's most ardent and hardworking advocates. Married to Ian for 57 years, center of a loving and thriving family, Fiona has traveled the world, published more than 30 works of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and changed the literary landscape for many New Zealanders, particularly women writers and women readers, who found strength in her own example, as well as in her nuanced and rich explorations of women's lives, both historical and contemporary. Now, at the beginning and end of our conversation, we'll hear from the Waipu Gaelic singers. Uh, so don't be alarmed when people with bonnets enter the stage. Uh, they'll be performing traditional songs, and the first is a walking song, that's walking with an LK, which is a, about cloth getting thumped, I believe, after it's been soaked in urine. I don't know. <laughs> There was no, uh, I, only, I won't even go there, no. There was no urine backstage that I could see, but they, they tell me that's what it is. Uh, the second they'll sing at the end is uh, uh, from the Isle of Isla, um, uh, uh, someone, a love song for someone called Katrina. They said anyone in the audience who likes uh, Lafroig or Lagavulin will be well familiar with the Isle of Isla. Uh, now, just briefly, before we sit down, I wanted to quote something that Fiona talks about in her memoir, Beside the Dark Pool, uh, she quotes another of my favorite authors, the Mississippi writer, Eudora Welty. And Welty wrote, I may have come from a sheltered life, but that doesn't mean I have a sheltered imagination, for all daring comes from within. Now, Fiona, too, is a small town girl who dares, and it's my great privilege to talk with her this evening about a rich life of writing, dreaming, and making things happen. Please welcome to the stage, Dame Fiona Kidman. Fiona. Hello, Paula. <laughs> I thought we would start our conversation tonight talking about roots, so it is very uh, fitting that we heard from the ladies of Waipu there. 
You had a, a childhood that involved small towns or small places in New Zealand, Kerry Kerry and Waipu very significant among them. And would you talk about their influence on you as a writer and as a person? Well, yes, indeed. I, I think of myself as a small town person, although I've lived in Wellington for, for nearly 50 years now. But my childhood was growing up in small Northland towns, some in the Waikato. At the end of World War II, my parents went up to Kerikiri after what I suppose is generally described by people, some men, as, as having had a bad war. My father wanted to get, get as far away up north to somewhere sunny. He wasn't very well. Um, Kerikiri was an interesting experience. I was six when I went there. And I have told this story perhaps before, but I, my parents went up there rather unexpectedly about their situation as servants to uh, a big family of, of military, ex-military people. And my mother was the cook and my father was the gardener. And I was, um, I was called the servant's little girl, actually, which I found a little hard to, to um, accommodate in my life. They weren't very good years in Kerikiri for my parents. I have to remember that there were good times. And, you know, I, I, when I speak of Kerikiri, I acknowledge its beauty and the warmth of its people. And I had a very special friend in, in Kerikiri who, who was, lived across the road from me, a Madeleine, and we drew and wrote together. But when your parents are going through bad times, you're not very happy either. So I have to... I have to try and put that to one side, I suppose, because the next, the next place that we went to the, um, was Waipu. And it was in Waipu that, I, that I, my, my Scots heritage, my mother was a, a, a fifth generation Scotswoman from a very staunch Scotch family. And there'd been a lot of, when, during the war, she and I had lived in Morrinsville with my grandparents, an extended family, and there'd been a lot of Scots music and so forth. Um, I had an Irish father, an immigrant father who never went home. Uh, and, and Waipu was a revelation in terms of the warmth of the neighbours and the way that we're accepted into a tiny community as it was then. And the strong sense of neighbourliness um, I was an only child. Um, there were a lot of a lot of nights beneath beneath the stars without another sight and house in sight. But I think that all of that was quite good from a writing point of view. Um, were you a sensitive child? Was I, were you a sensitive child? Was I sensitive? Um, oh gosh. No, I don't, I don't like to think of myself as sensitive. That's a bit of a worry to me. <laughs> I think I was a difficult child. Yes, most people would say I was, I was quite a difficult child, I think. Because you were quite fiery. I was fiery, yes. I used, I used to um, rear up a little bit. But I, I think I've worked through that now, you know. I'd like to think I had. Then your family moved to Rotorua. They did move to Rotorua. And I went to work in the public library in Rotorua. And I had had, an, I'd had a couple of jobs before that. I'd actually worked as a, a spare parts tractor hand. I, know, I used to know quite a lot about Ferguson tractors. And anyway, I, that, after that, I, I 
thought that I'd better, my father said I should get a proper job, and so I went to work in the Rotorua Public Library. It was in the Rotorua Public Library that something significant happened, but before that I should say I'd had quite a lively um, teenage time. I'd had my heart broken at least 72 times, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I figured out that that was the num probably the number of, roughly the number of young men who'd seen me home from the dances in Rotorua. And I used to wonder why they hadn't called me back. Um, of course, it was because my father said that we couldn't have a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> And, and just to, to say, bef this work in the library was a, a great place for you to discover books, but university was not a possibility for you? It just, no, it didn't. My parents left the farm. We went, they had a farm in Waipu, and they were extremely hard up. They never, really, they never really made it financially, and the question in 1955 was of going to university not very many people of my generation did. If we left the farm, we'd go to, um, we'd go teaching or we'd go um, dental nursing or, or something like that. But I didn't want to do those things. Um, so I sort of messed around for a while. And I'll, I'll talk about, the, um, about the, 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 the books and the influence they had on me. Um, I had a wonderful head librarian, she was a, a a woman called Kit Spencer, who I think was a feminist before her time, and I hadn't had a great deal of education. I only went, I left school when I was 15, but she introduced me to classical literature, um, to, um, and she, she, she talked about storytelling, and she introduced me to French and um, Russian 19th century literature, which I would never, as a teenager coming off the farm, have dreamed of reading had it not been for her. And she certainly changed my life. The other thing that changed my life in the Rotorua Public Library, and I'd like to talk about this quite soon, because what I think is that what happens in your teens is, is really what shapes you for a long time to come and forever, really? I think of I think of the one's youth as setting up the song lines for a lifetime, and and I'm very I've been very interested. And in one of the writers I became interested in was during that period was Marguerite Duras, the French writer who I've who's haunted me all my life. Um, and she talks, says that she has suggested that the idea of um, that what you've, what's happened to you by the time you're about 16 or 17 is what will set the pattern really for the rest of your life. That might be a bit of a worry to some people. <laughs> but, but essentially I think that it, it, it did for me. And what happened in Rotorua Public Library, it's a, it's a version of a story I've told before, I suppose, but it's really an important one because it's what happened to me for the, for the rest of my, my life, the important early decision that I made. I was standing at the desk one day stamping books, and there was a, another young woman standing beside me, and we looked up idly, and there was a young man came into the library and I kind of looked him up and down a bit, and I said, do you see that chap that's just come in here? And she said, oh, yes, yes, I said, yeah, what about him? 
I said, well, I'm, I'm going to put my stamp on him. <laughs> <laughs> so I set off to, uh, down the library. I should say that after all these broken hearts and so forth, I had resigned myself to spinsterhood. How, I, how old were you? I was 19. Yes, I'd been a bridesmaid twice. You, see, you can understand it, can't you? You were desperate, yes. I was pretty... <laughs> <laughs> so I went down the, down the library and I, I was wearing a grey tailored suit and I straightened up my glasses and I said... He was a school teacher with a whole lot of kids around him and I said, will you keep those children quiet, please? <laughs> anyway, dear reader, he married me. <laughs> he took me off the shelf. <laughs> and, and I mention this and Ian because my life has been set on a course. I was listening to Mary Coughlin the other night talking, singing a song about what what would my life would have been, would have been like if I had if I had been with this man or that man, and and she goes through all the possibilities. Well, we've had what I call an adventure of life together, and a lot of the travels and a lot of the things that we've done together and our children and our grandchildren, that, has been my, that is my life. It's, it's, it's still happening nearly 60 years later. So I made some very early decisions about my life and they have influenced everything I've done since then. Because you said something to me about marriage today when we were talking. You said you married outside expectations. I did marry outside expectations. I had this very strongly Presbyterian mother. Um, she was a storyteller too, I might say, but she did have some quite strict ideas about how girls should behave, and I hadn't met them. And my father was quite, quite Victorian in his attitudes. And it was, um, I married somebody who was of Maori descent, and I suppose, putting it in a nutshell, I came from a strongly Pākehā-orientated background who didn't, hadn't actually perceived their, um, their daughter marrying outside of their culture. So that was something else that marrying Ian took me on that particular journey, a journey of discovery, which again, I've been in all my life. So do you think you've had an unconventional marriage? He's hmm. in the audience, what can I say? <laughs> That's true, and also your children are here, aren't they? And some of your grandchildren. Yes, yes. So would, would you tell me later? Okay. <laughs> um, yes, I think we have, because, because we, we, we've, we've had, we've, we've traveled a lot together. We've, um, I think the thing that we had gave each other in our lives, which was, was really significant, is that we gave each other the freedom to do what we wanted to. In our, so that being a writer, when I, after the library and when the children started to come along, we went to live in suburban Rotorua, where everybody had very strong expectations of how you behaved. You know, the, the nappies had to be absolutely dead white and you looked from fence to fence to fence and everybody was looking over them to see whether your nappies had the right amount of whiteness in them and so forth. And you made a hundred jars, at least a hundred jars of preserves every year. I mean, there's nothing wrong with preserving, it's, it's nice, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like counting the jars and I stopped doing it a long time ago. Um, 
And I, I started to write during that time. And this was the 1960s, and it was perceived as being an unconventional thing to do. It was considered a bit outrageous. And I think that probably this early life I've talked about a certain naivety about, about how people behaved in the suburbs, about being an only child, about being rather inward and having written a lot and, and, and a great reader and so forth. I didn't really know what other people was, what was expected of me in this role. I mean, at that time you weren't necessarily aware of the voices in New Zealand literature, established New Zealand literature, who were quite anti-women as well. I mean, you went on to hear lovely tidbits from Dennis Glover or Kendrick Smithyman about lady writers. Lady writers and the menstrual school of poetry, which was one of Dennis's lines. Um, I, I, felt, I felt at the beginning that it was that there was a certain amount of antagonism. That said, I had some wonderful mentors. Uh, I, one of the things that I used to do was that I used to park the kids and go off to Wellington and go to, um, to seminars. And I was mentored by Bruce Mason, the playwright. And he, he, would, he tremendously supported what I was doing. He, I was astonished when he chose a play of mine to workshop. And then I, I, became, I met another, so another writer called Julian Dickin, who was a radio playwright and a dramatist. He introduced me into to radio drama. And in a very short time, I had, um, in the late 1960s, I had started uh, writing radio drama, which I wrote some 60 plays over the years. And from there, I went to television. And again, there was um, Arthur Jones and uh, William Austin, who was the head of radio and television in those days, and I, I have to be—I have to say, in all fairness, that I owe a great deal to those men who mentored me, and said, "Look, we think what you're doing is interesting." And yeah. So you were writing for a living, you yes. know, while you were raising your family, and yes, before long before you published a book. Yes, I was. Yes, I, I was. I didn't publish my first book until 1975. And I did that with, um, I was, had become, had a great friendship after we moved, the family moved to Wellington. Very shortly afterwards, I developed a very strong and deep friendship with the poet Loris Edmund. We were both from small towns. We both had families. We both had a longing to write and be published. And our first books of poetry were published in 1975 at the University Club. And that was where Dennis made his, his menstrual school of poetry line because he introduced Loris. He had a lot of good qualities, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he, did, he was rather one of the old boys lot. And Sam Hunt introduced mine. And I think there was, uh, that year, there were nine books of poetry published by New Zealand women. It was the most that had been published probably more than had been published in the previous 10 years. And it was International Women's Year, which was, had been the trigger for all, the, all this outpouring of, of writing actually being published, which it was, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, it's incredible. We have to remember this now because now there are so many women yes, writing and yes. publishing. And in fact, we have some men complaining that there's too many. There's so many of us <laughs> hogging it all. 
But it's, we need to remember that not that long ago, it was much more unusual. Mm. How important or significant was that friendship with Lawrence as another writer as well as another mother? It, it, it was a very intense friendship and it lasted till her death in, in, in 2000. And being able to, I have never really shared my work very much. Um, I still don't really, but with her, we would exchange perhaps not so much the work, but, but our dreams and our hopes and how it was working for us and um, what, yeah, it, 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 was, it was like a, it was one of the, so it was another of the song lines, if you like, um, just to be able to explore what it was that we wanted out of life and out of our writing. So you began, Sorry, if you should I bring the table closer? No. It's all right. Okay. You began pub your publishing career with the book of poetry, but it was really your first novel, A Breed of Woman, that put you on the map. I have to tell you, if I haven't already, I remember overhearing my mother on the phone talking about it. Oh, really? Yes, to one of her cronies, and they were all reading it, and she said, it's filthy. <laughs> so I, of course, was immediately intrigued and was banned from picking it up. Um, it was banned in schools. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> but I think the shocking thing about it, because my mother read all sorts of saucy things, I've you know, been through all their books quite extensively, but that it was a New Zealand book that dared to do that, mm. not an international book. So what, did you feel like you were a sensation at the time? Well, no, I, well yes I did when it came out. I didn't when I was writing it. Because over, through, the, through the 70s, which was a time of great change for, um, New Zealand women. Um, women had started to, to tell their stories to each other and when I wrote A Breed of Women, I really wanted to write the experiences that we'd had in the previous decade. And so I, I was writing it not, I mean of course Harriet Wallace, the central character, has got some reflections of myself but it also has other women's stories that, are co that coalesce around Harriet. Um, everybody, to my horror, assumed that everything that had happened to the central character had actually happened to me. And that was very troubling. It, mm -hmm. and, the, and I hadn't, I just thought I was writing a book because I don't think about my audience a lot when I'm writing. But I was very aware that there were books like The Women's Room and so forth that were coming out at that time. But I had no idea that it would cause such a stir. Sharon Crosby, who is a great friend of mine, and still is, um, was queen of the airwaves in those days. And she came on the day of the launch, she launched the book, and she came on and she said, started at night, just after the nine o'clock news, and she said, and I'm having my friend Fiona Kidman on today, and darlings, this is the book we've all been waiting for, and you simply have to read it. And it's quite rude in places, but don't worry about that, you do have to read it. And then the book sold 10,000 copies that yeah. week, yeah. which I, which was very unusual. I didn't realise they'd published so many. And then it sold 35,000 that yeah. year. And again in 1979, that was a lot. But I realised that it was, it caused pressure for my family. It was, um, I was that sort of, I was that filthy writer. Yes, I was filthy Fiona Kidman. <laughs> I went to, I went from, from, 
there, after the launch, I went to Australia to do a, a promotion tour. And um, I did 28 interviews over in Sydney and, and up the Gold Coast. I should say it was the first time I'd ever been out of New Zealand. I was 40. And I did all these interviews, and one of the things that kept coming up was, um, um, you know, you've got a, a Māori-Pākehā interaction and, and marriage, you know, is, don't you think that that's a bit disgusting? And of course, I, was, I started to realise that my own position was, had been questioned in lots of ways that hadn't been so blatantly obvious to me. I remember sitting like this in a radio station on the last day, and I at an empty chair before the interviewer came on, and I suddenly thought to myself, is that me over there? I felt totally disembodied. But I realized I was in, I realized during that tour that I was into something very much deeper than I had ever understood. I came back and something I've not really talked about in public before, but the next day, one of my very great friends was shot by her husband, um, and he was a person of, in a, a very esteemed profession, and there was great violence, and I started to, all of the things that I had, I had not, I'd written about and I'd thought about, but. It was so close to me, and I was involved in the whole movement of protest that surrounded that death. And I suppose I became what I describe as an accidental feminist. Um, I hadn't written A Breed of Women from a feminist perspective, but that was how it was perceived, and I'm glad because I am a feminist. I believe in, in feminism. I believe in equality of choice for, for women. Um, but it was, I was pitched into something headlong. <laughs> I wondered if you would read the poem you wrote for Loris. It seems, because she was part of your accidental feminist movement as well. She was. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. So Loris lived over the hill from, from where I live in Wellington. Um, she lived in Grass Street up above Oriental Parade, and she wrote many poems about, about Grass Street, very beautiful poems. But this is my poem, written 15 years after her death. So it's Grass Street 2000 to 2015, and it's just prefaced by a little extract of hers. I thought, this is my time. I don't have it for long and the way here was never easy. So this is the poem. I don't come here very often, once every few years, although the house is just over the hill from mine. But on some January days like today, I'm drawn with an irresistible longing to walk down the zigzag path, to inhale the scent of new cut grass, the rising fragrance like hay paddocks of my childhood. At number 22, there is still a big no-nuke sign on a concrete wall. There used to be a rainbow-painted letterbox as well, fallen down now. 
I stand and look up to the deck, once covered with geranium-filled pots, and all the people who used to come here to talk and laugh and drink and quarrel and make up. Today the house is empty, not a curtain nor a stick of furniture, and the path is barred with branches that must have been cut within the hour, the sap fresh, the leaves still full of energy. I remember the day when we stood there saying one of our goodbyes, and you said, someday I'll be gone, and you'll have to get used to it. And I said, Loris, that won't be for years. You didn't hint at illness, although when you love someone and expect them to stay, it's easy to overlook a certain frailty. I'm not sure that I'm used to it yet, that sudden exit, though 15 years have dissolved and the house has been tumbling down ever since. I have gathered nasturtiums from a bank, laid them at the gate, looked again towards the forsaken deck, could have sworn I saw her flag of yellow curls, heard that throaty laugh. talk about just the, the sheer range of different th books you've written. You've written historical novels, contemporary novels, you've written books of poetry, you've written 60 plays, it's crazy. You've raised all these children, you've been incredibly active in New Zealand's literary scene, which I want to talk about in a moment as well. But what draws you into a story? Talk a little bit about your process. What's the thing that gets you going with a story? Well, I have, to be, I have to be fascinated by the character, whether they be fictional or, or real people. I've been drawn to a number of real characters, and of course I wrote the Book of Secrets, which comes out of my Waipu years, and I was very fascinated by the character of Norman MacLeod. But I have to say that from my, where I stood, um, outside a little bit of the community, but looking in, um, I wasn't terribly, um, I wasn't terribly enthused by his attitude towards women, shall we say. And I thought, I went to, um, I went to, to Scotland to, to research his whole background, and I, I was in a little cemetery at Store Point, um, where some of the, um, the, the original settlers from the, what is the Nova, became the Nova Scotian migration to, to Waipu, and I saw the graves of a lot of women who had the same names as the women in the cemetery at Waipu. And I thought to myself, this is, this is the women's story. This is how they responded and how they lived around Norman MacLeod and how they coped with that. So in a way, MacLeod was the, the inspiring figure. But I've also been captured by people like, for instance, Betty Gard in The Captive Wife, who was the woman who was, uh, who was um, kidnapped after a shipwreck and lived with Maori people uh, in the, um, for several months before she was rescued, and I say rescued, <laughs> and I'll come to that in a moment. Um, she survived kidnapping with her two children. One of them ultimately died, very sadly, but she did survive. And not only that, became very part of, the, of tribal life and uh, had a romantic attachment there. And the, 
that story interested me. It also interested me in the sense of the, the extraordinary brutality that was meted out to her by the, the, the husband and the, 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 the ships that came to, to, from Sydney because what her husband did after the shipwreck, he managed to make his way to Sydney to get a, what was supposed to be a ransom to rescue Betty, his wife Betty. But instead of um, a ransom, he, um, he brought with him um, two warships to, and that, that gunned down the Taranaki tribespeople, Ngāti Rākawa, and initiated the, first, the very first armed conflict against Māori in, in this country. And this seemed to me to be so full of history, um, I was very drawn to Betty. I thought she was brave, but I was also horrified and it hit my heart somewhere in a place that was indescribable. And so I guess characters, strong, brave women who've weathered the elements. Jean Batten is somebody, she was, she was born just down the road from the library where I worked in Rotorua. And people used to come into the library and I'd say, oh, do you know where Jean Batten is? And by that time, she'd actually started one of her great disappearing acts. She was actually living in Jamaica at the time and living it up with Ian Fleming and Noel Coward. <laughs> but we weren't to know that in the library. So there was this amazing local mysterious woman who I discovered was so famous. So I'm really drawn to, to strong characters, I guess people who perhaps I'd like to be like, but if the, if the truth be known. Um, yeah. And I'm interested in, in, in uh, the research aspect interests me. So when, it's, when there's that sort of background, I'll do, I'll do a long process of, um, of, of researching. I'll try and go to the places that, that my characters have been, although I have to say that I was a bit defeated by, by Jean Batten. I haven't ever landed in the desert near Karachi, <laughs> although I have flown in a little plane with a white scarf around my neck mm -hmm. and, and done some loops. It was terrifying, but I decided it had to be done, you know. One has to do things for, their, for art, don't they? Yes. So I, 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 try to, I try to make, I try to get inside the character and I carry them around inside me for a long time and I, talk to them quite a lot, you know, sometimes they stand beside me when I'm doing the dishes, although actually I have to say Ian does the dishes these days, <laughs> so I take them out for rides in the car and, and they chat, we chat away to each other and I'm thinking about dialogue, I'm very interested in dialogue and I guess that's it. my years of working in radio and television have, have had a lot to do with that. Fiona, I wonder if we could have our little reading now. We have a special guest here, don't yes, we? Yes, should we talk, just, just say what, what the book is? Because, I Would think you, because we, we wanted to have a reading from Fiona's most recent novel. Yes. And, uh, and we have Loris's daughter, Francis, Francis here shall to I read just, for us. Shall we tell them what the book is? Because I think Francis wants me to do that. All right, go ahead. Yeah, okay, it's a novel called All Day at the Movies. And it's, it's essentially my hymn to, to, to small town New Zealand and sometimes my lament for it as well because it's set in various um, small town locations. And it starts in Machueka when, uh, one of my, when the character of Irene um, 
goes there with, after at the end of World War II with her small, oh, well, it's actually early 1950s by then, with her small daughter, Jessie, and she goes to work in the tobacco fields. And this is something that happens one night. And it's very gripping. Please welcome to the stage, Frances Edmund. Yeah, Frances Edmund. My dear friend, too. Dear Fiona, it's a real honour to read for you from this quite wonderful book. When she was far into the rose, she stood still and waited. Soon she felt his footfall behind her. She didn't turn around. I had to go to town that night. I couldn't help it, she said. I know about that. Oh, surprise me, she said. Is there anything anyone doesn't know in this place? Is that why you haven't come back, she said. Didn't you like what we did? This newfound assertiveness surprised her. But then she thought, Perhaps I'm behaving more like a spurned woman in a 19th century novel. They always came to grief. She turned to leave. I'm being watched, he said. His hands had closed around her elbows, holding her back from walking away. Why? Doesn't matter. An excuse, I don't believe you. But as soon as the words were out, she thought, he isn't lying. He kissed her hard on the mouth and drew away. You're being watched too. Why should anyone watch me? You and I have done nothing wrong. You think, you think we're the only ones who do things? It was a black night, stars hiding under cloud cover that suggested the possibility of rain rather than frost. She could hear the singing from the camp. Smoke gets in your eyes. Yet today my love has flown away. She thought fleetingly of Andrew. Flown away, all right. I am without, without. Jessie was without her. I have to go, she said. He spoke as if he hadn't heard her. He pulled her close to him, nuzzling the back of her neck, his hands cupping her breasts. The woman who lives across from you told Pawson you were up to no good, said you couldn't look after your kid. I heard her. What did he say? It was none of his business, he said. So she told him you were a commie. A what? Oh, for God's sake. She was aware of a strange smell in the air that she couldn't yet identify. My father was a wharfie. He was in the strike. What does he think I am, a trade union official in disguise? She laughed wildly, a little madly. Something else had just occurred to her, her swollen tender breasts and the period that hadn't come. He said you'd get over it in time. He thinks you'll go with him. I never would. She stood for a moment thinking. I'm going to tell him I'm leaving here tomorrow, she said. If you've got any sense, you'll come away too. She lifted her head. Burning, she said. Something's burning. Behind them, smoke was rising and the singing had turned to cries of panic. From one of the kilns, a coil of flame was rising in the sky. Jessie! Irene screamed. Bert was racing ahead of her, faster than she could run. Beyond the tobacco fields, everyone was running. This was the disaster that could strike. The furnace out of control, the kiln burned down, the harvest lost. The fire was snaking higher and higher, green and yellow flames, the air heaving with the smell of Nicotiana. As she sprinted down through the camp, Irene saw Jock Pawson, outlined against the burning building. 
Above him, the power line that linked the kiln shed to the pole outside the batches was arcing above his head. He saw Bert. Botcher! And then putting his hands to his mouth to form a trumpet, he screamed, Botcher! Where are you, hands, botcher? You're needed. He gestured towards the twisting power line. Go up the pole and disconnect it. Already Bert was clambering up the pole. That was the moment Jessie appeared from the batch and began running towards her mother. No, shouted Bert, and as the line fell, he threw himself from the pole, trapping Jessie in his arms and rolling her free. Run, Jessie, Irene shrieked. Run fast. Jessie threw herself into her mother's arms. The power line danced like a skipping rope, and Bert caught it as he fell, tearing it from the pole, his body arching in a terrible, writhing motion before he lay still. As Irene ran forward, Jock Pawson threw her to the ground so that her body didn't connect with that of the dead man. And still plumes of flame pierced the night sky, curling and licking and caressing the hurrying clouds. And there was nothing anyone could do except watch the crop burn and stare aghast at the blackened body of the man who had called himself Bert Butcher. Thank you very much, Francis. That was fantastic. Yes, thank you. And that, of course, is one of Loris's legacies to me, the great friendship with her daughter Frances. And it's something special that goes on to have, have that friendship. Could we talk about you a little now, Fiona, in the context of New Zealand literature, that grand thing we would drag around with us? Um, because you have been, as everyone knows, president of PAN, you've been very instrumental in the New Zealand Book Council and things like the Wellington Writers' Walk, the Randall Cottage Residency. You're someone who actually gets out there and does things. You're the difficult child who became the writer writing about difficult women and difficult situations, and you have not been afraid yourself either to actually make things happen. Oh, thank you. Well, I've tried. I'm not sure about literature, you know, they I, one of the th things I hear quite often is, well, she's um, popular, but it's not necessarily literature, is it? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that because we're getting <laughs> on to happy things. Yeah, I have. I, 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 because I felt quite isolated when I, was, when, when I started to write in Rotorua, I, became, I, was, I was introduced to um, an opportunity to, um, to help orchestrate a, a literary event in Rotorua by this amazing librarian, Kate, Kit Spencer. And it was after I'd left the library and had children. And it got, I saw how it lit up the town, and I thought that that was really something interesting to do. And we're about to go to Wellington, and when I got to Wellington, I, I joined um, Penn, as it was then, and I was, I was the national president of, of that for some time. But I have been involved in, in various um, organisations. One of them, I was actually, I, I had a paid job for a little, for two or three years when I went to Wellington and I was the first director of the, oh, I think I was the secretary of those days, but I was the first person to run the um, New Zealand Book Council. And so I got a job on the strength of this, this thing that I'd done in Rotorua. And 
Um, yes, I, it kind of just grew from there. But there was something that I, later on I became the president, years later I became the president of the Book Council. And one of the things that I'm really proud of having started was the Words on Wheels tour. You've been on one, haven't you? I have around Northland. So what they do is they get a van, put a lot of writers into it, and send you careering off a region, around a region. You talk to schools and libraries, at community centres. It's really fantastic. It, it, is, it is fantastic. And the, where I got the idea from was a, I, I used to hang out a little bit um, with with some Australian women writers. And I had one come called Cassandra Pivas come over to stay with me. And she'd just been on, a, what, on the rail tours that they ran for writers. And she was very excited about that. And then I went to Melbourne to a festival. And I heard one of the organizers of these writers rail tours stand up and talk. And he talked about, um, he talked, he, he just stood there and he talked about how the train had gone into the desert and there was a woman, woman and a child and there was this vast expanse of red, red desert and they'd just gone into the, into the desert and they'd seen these two people standing here all alone in this great vast space and they were holding some desert flowers and so the train stopped and all the writers got off the train and sat down and read to the child. And it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I thought to myself, we should be doing something like this. Instead, of, not everybody can come to big festivals in the city. And of course, that small town thing of mine again too. I thought, we should be going, we should be doing this sort of thing, but we haven't got enough rail tracks and even less of them now, but let's not go into that too much. And, well, we should, but anyway, but anyway, yes, yes, the trains. <laughs> um, and so I said, thought, well, we could do this at buses, and so I went back. And the other thing I should say about perhaps that, that inspired me a little bit and how I feel about deserts is that my mother, although she was a bit straight-laced and so forth, she'd had her breakouts of her own. She'd run away to Western Australia to marry my father in the 1930s, and she'd caught the train across the Nullarbor Plain. And I'd followed on, the, on that train. I've, I've made that journey too. And I really like vast hearts of emptiness and writers like Patrick White and so forth. Those really stir me. So I said, well, you know, I, I went back to the book council and I said, let's do this. And I persuaded them and Creative New Zealand came to the, to the, to the, to the party and gave us some money and we had the first tour and it was, and I said to the, to the group, I said, words on wheels, it should go from North Cape to the bluff. And it has done that, not once now, but many times. And I'm very thrilled to have been part of that. The other initiative that I've been involved with for some 16 or 17 years now is the Randall Cottage Writers' Trust. And I think we were, pro I'm not sh absolutely certain, but I think it's true that we were the first writers' residency in New Zealand. And we had tried to buy Loris's house. She had very much wanted her house to be a writer's residence. For all sorts of reasons, that didn't come off. But a children's writer called Beverly Price, or her writing name is Beverly Randall, 
had, had a, rang me up and said, Fiona, I can't buy Loris's house for you, but I've got a house I can give you. And I said, oh really? And she said, yes, it's a, a historic listed cottage and we've rest our family's restored it and it was my great-grandfather's. And we know that we won't have anyone, there was three of them, she and her husband and her daughter, Susan. We won't have anyone to leave it to, but we'd... She said, is Vincent O'Sullivan involved? And I said, yes, he is. He's part of our group. Oh, well, she said, it'll be all right. I'll, <laughs> dro I'll drop the keys in the letterbox. <laughs> and she did. I mean, this is a true story. I mean, there was, we formed a, a little trust along the way, and she went and saw her lawyer, but one day she just came up our path in her tie-tie and popped the keys in the letterbox. And so now every year we have... Um, a New Zealand writer for six months of the year and a French writer for six months of the year. And the French are, have brought a wonderful new dimension to, to Wellington life and I love, I've loved being part of that. Are you doing any less these days or are you still busy as anything? Um, I'm as busy as anything. <laughs> um, I am writing a, a novel but I'm not ready to talk about that yet. And family life absorbs me. I'm not just, I'm now a grandmother and a great-grandmother. And hi, welcome <laughs> to the look down there. Um, welcome to the whanau. Um, and, and so all of those things keep me really busy and I'm, in, uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite as involved. I've drawn back from being on committees and things. It seems. You say you're not as involved, but then I opened the newspaper last year and there's Dame Fiona Kidman joins Pike River protest and oh, yes. there you are. Yes, yes. Yes, indeed. I did, Ian and I did go down to Pike River and you asked me before if... Um, about whether we did things which were a bit unconventional. Apparently people thought that was, but Ian has had some strong West Coast links and we saw one night on television, we saw the people at the protest um, when um, Solid Energy started to seal, want, prepared to seal the, the mine to put a 30-foot wall of um, concrete so that it could never be entered again which I don't know whether it's... It's not for me to say whether I think Pike River should be entered or not, but I think while there are still experts who say that it can be safely entered, I think that the 29 people who lost their men um, should be... Their wishes should be respected to have every option explored. And Ian and I said to each other, they look really lonely there on the road. Um, do you think we should be there? And he said, yes, of course we should. Um, so I said, well, shall we find out whether they'd like us to come? And we did, and the next day we went and joined the protest. And, <laughs> and nothing is resolved yet. The ceiling has stopped for the moment. Um, we, we would love to think that um, that the, the people's, that people's wishes will be observed, but that remains to be seen. You talk about you and Ian, yes. and I, we were talking backstage. Fiona has a poem that she wrote for her husband, and she was wondering if she should read it or not. I think she should. Okay, okay. all right. <laughs> okay. 
We like to go up to the Hokianga together. We go as often as we can. And so this was written um, about being up there. And it's called So Far For Now, for Ian. Hokianga's Shy Hills, the poet wrote, and Scylla, you got it right. A skein of sand, a sleeve of trees above the water, beneath the dunes. A girl bringing a fish and chip bundle, her cigarette and a stab of gold in her nose. A baby under the black dress. The hills diminishing into the collapsed world of evening. Oh, you know that you are going, that you have already gone far along the journey when you sit here, just the two of you at a rough wooden table in this dusk light, eating with slow care, not talking about anything much, having said enough, sometimes more than enough, for as long as you can remember, not needing to say it all again. In the morning, there is mist. The hills have taken flight. I've had a lucky, lucky life, and I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful to, for being asked here to the festival. I'm so grateful to, my, to Anne O'Brien for asking me here, for all the wonderful organizers. I'd like to include in my thanks, because we were talking about writing process, my wonderful editor at Ra Penguin Random House, Harriet Allen, and all those people who've supported me for so many years, I think, I've there are many people to thank, but I'd just like to say really thank you, everybody, and thank you for coming and supporting my books, your wonderful readers. I love you all. <laughs> I think it's time we got some more bonnets on the stage, so please let's invite our, our friends from Waipu back onto the stage, please. They're not carousing out the back. Right in the middle. Nur the Vami Alma Nila Vakatrina Koram 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 Nur the Vami Alma N
you to come over to me, Fiona. We'd like to come over here. I just want to present you on behalf of the festival with this ponamu from Chris Charteris, which we present to each of our honoured writers each year to thank you for your contribution to the literary life of New Zealand. Thank you. I also have for Fiona a festival t-shirt because I understand she made a special request earlier in the day. Oh, yes. So she has her own t-shirt to take home oh, as well. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Thank you. I used to deliver, as some of you know, Fiona's newspaper. As I said to someone, I was about 10 years old, but she was one of those houses that they paid their money on account. So most people every second Wednesday, you knocked on their door and you got to see them, but the Kidmans paid their money on account. But I knew where they lived. Um, it's my honor to finish off this session after what has been an extraordinary uh, six days. And I say this with some relief and some joy and some sadness because it's been such an amazing thing. And this moment is, is a moment in time and it's gonna go away from us, but it, hopefully we're gonna take a lot away with us. We set out on a journey uh, at the beginning of this week. We did some ambitious things. We set up a new venue in the square. We took to the streets in High Street. We took over the town hall on Saturday night for a showcase, and we filled these rooms for six days. And I want to acknowledge the team, Tessa and Roger and Catherine and Claire and Penny and Nick and Susanna and everyone who I work with who makes this thing possible, and our wonderful board led by Pip. Um, so we wanted to move people, and I think we did. And we wanted to share ideas and stimulate people, and I think we did. And we wanted to have fun, and I think we did that too. From Lloyd Gehring to Max Harris, we have spent the weeks understanding our past and anticipating our future and engaging with the now in wonderful, wonderful ways. And as is always the way with a festival, there are recurring themes. And I think just some of them that we can carry away are ideas about community and engagement and compassion and commitment. We can take that with us out, out there into the world. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all the writers who have made that possible and to the audience because it is an engagement. We have listened to each other as we spoke about at the beginning of the week and that is where the magic comes from. Um, 
the, the uh, sheer numbers are, as you can imagine, if you've jostled your way through the halls, quite extraordinary. As you probably know, last year our attendance was 65,000. We are very close to, if not at 72,000. That is a 10% increase on last year. So we are doing our work. We are proud to do that for you, and we feel that is a privilege. Thank you for coming, 15th to 20th May 2018. Put it in your diary. We will be doing that shortly. And I just want to finish by thanking once again Dame Fiona Kidman and the writers that she represents from New Zealand and around the world for what they give us every day through their imagination and their craft. Thank you. Good night. Go and get some rest. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.